Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51. I'm Dr. Brian Morris. Today's guest is Dr. Jen Billinson from Christopher Newport University. Dr. Jen Billinson, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Morris. This is this is exciting. It's yet another uh, Newhouse PhD uh, reunion. What the world needs now is more of us talking on podcasts about stuff. Exactly. More of us together, just talking and repeating the same thing together right. in spaces. T- tell, tell, telling the same stories, making Newhouse even yes. more insular. It's great. It's good. So... <laughs> Uh, we've got a we got a lot of good stuff we to to get to today. But first, I'm kind of going old school as far as this podcast it goes because we haven't talked a lot about Hamilton on this podcast in a very long time. Yeah. But you you have two distinctions for me with Hamilton. One, okay. you recently saw it at the Kennedy Center, so we need to discuss that. But also, you were the first friend of mine into Hamilton. <gasps> Can you put that in writing somewhere so I can show people? Because it's really important to me to be the first of someone into something like Hamilton. Yes, yeah. I, I, I will make a note of it. I will put it in, in our lockbox so that in, in 85 <laughs> years when, when people discover it. Um, all right, so we'll get to the Kennedy Center thing in a minute. Yes. Um, but so this is going back, obviously, several years. But how did you discover Hamilton? Um, I don't know if you know this about me, Brian, but um, I spent a fair amount of time um, online and uh, going around. <laughs> I think uh, really, I think just from like Twitter or something and something mentioned it and I um, and I went and listened to the music and I was immediately just completely obsessed with it and n- very few people would listen to me. You were an early adapter as well. You mm-hmm. were into it like from the beginning as well, but people would not listen to me. I was like, this is amazing. It's like a rap musical about, you know, the founding <laughs> Of the United States of America, which didn't really sell it to a lot of people, but I don't know. I don't totally remember, but I loved it. And of course, I am big into like music and emotion. So without even having seen it or really knowing the whole thing, I would just like listen to it and walk around my neighborhood with my dog and cry. Um, I am. I've told the story on here before, but Jen, my wife, who's a Broadway person, is the one who actually got me to listen to it. She was going down. She went away for a weekend to visit a friend of hers down around the city. And uh, yeah. so she's like, I downloaded Hamilton so I can listen to it on the way down. And she called me like, it turns out it was right after uh, the first King George song, uh, right after you'll be back. And she's like, you have to listen to this when I get back. This is the most amazing yeah. thing I've ever heard of. She gets home two days later after I now I haven't seen my wife in two days. Um, she says here, she put it on the, on the stereo and it's like, sit down in this chair in our living room. Listen, just listen to it. And at one point I got up to go talk to our daughter. She's like, no, sit, listen, you need to listen. Stop. Don't do anything else, but listen to it. And, uh, and here we are. But, um, so you saw, it, you saw it recently on the, on its recent tour in Washington. 
I saw it at the Kennedy Center. It was beyond me. Okay, I'm really impressed that Jen got you to sit down and listen to it because it took me like several years to get my wife to really sit down and listen to Hamilton. And to be fair, she's a sociologist and she was immediately pointing out like the romanticization of, you know, of like, the founding of this country and like how we can have, you know, uh, these diverse uh, like casts and representations now, but we still we still have to deal and you know discuss all you know all of the underlying issues. But it took me forever to get her to listen to it, and then she became obsessed with it as well. And we went and saw it at the Kennedy Center. It was beyond amazing. It was one of those like few things that I think lives up to the hype of it, right? So like I had it, I had staged this in my head. I knew what it looked like. I had like created this whole thing, and it absolutely lived up to the expectations. It was awesome. I, I, I cried 18 times. It was amazing. I, I, I was wondering about that because obviously you, you've listened to it a billion times. You've seen videos yes. of it. So what's it like? Because we're going to see it, I think, in, I don't know, sometime in the spring. It's finally coming on tour and we're going to see it then. Um, but yes. what, what's it like to, you know, the, this piece of work that you know so well now you're yes. kind of seeing it and obviously seeing a show in a theater is such a different experience from just listening to it, but a show, you know, so well, like, I guess one of my fears on it is always like this weird, like, Oh, I'm just going to be singing along. Like I'm listening to, yes. to the, to, to, to my, to my phone. So how is it different? It was so, I mean, it's, I've been, you know, people have talked about this and written about this, but it is staged so beautifully and there's so much to look at. So I was worried too. I was like, am I just going to sit there? I'm going to sing. I'm going to not only annoy people around me, but like I have the worst singing voice that's ever happened. So like <laughs> what's, what is be like, but there's so much to look at. It's so like all it's so there's just so much stuff going on. Um, mm -hmm. and it completely like transported me and just took me like right into it. And the, the staging's amazing. The people who we had in our, um, in our cast were just completely amazing. And I was also worried. I was like, especially because this is, it's a different way to experience. I don't know if it's totally different. Yeah. It's like a different way that people have experienced Broadway this way, right? Like everyone has become so enamored with, you know, the original Broadway cast, people who aren't, you know, necessarily into Broadway or into theater that much. Everyone got so into that soundtrack and they know what, you know, what Hamilton is supposed to sound like Lin-Manuel Miranda. And like, this is how the voices are supposed to be. And I was worried. I was like, that's going to kind of take me out of it. Um, but it didn't. It's just beautiful. It's completely staged so beautifully. Um, and also, I love to, I, because of like kind of what I study and what I'm interested in, I am love seeing other people watching things or experiencing media in that way, like whether it's at a concert. Um, and it was just, it was just awesome to just look down at this row of people um, and just people are crying. And of course there are also the people who had apparently never heard of Hamilton um, and who got dragged there like that day. And were like, I don't really understand what's happening. And those people just annoyed the crap. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing how many people are waiting to see this musical, right. and they, they, they just wandered off the street, or like someone told them, like, "Oh, this is a this is a thing. You should you should watch it. You should see it." And they they were you could tell them right away because at like um, at uh, intermission they were just like, "I have no idea what anyone's saying. It is too fast. What is going on?" And yeah, and so, you and is, you and you like the three of us will be when we go see it. We we're probably just weeping with absolute joy. Oh, just weeping, like at the beginning, like from from the beginning till the end. It doesn't matter what's happening. Like I don't need to wait for the sad parts. I'm gonna cry. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I hear I'm gonna hear dent 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 done. Yes, 
So exactly. All right. So exactly. here, here is a Hamilton question for you. Then we will get to writing and research and all that other stuff. Okay. But we, so my, Jen and I, it's my wife, better. had this debate on, had debated this on either the drive down or drive back from Washington from the AEGMC okay. conference where we just were. You uh-huh. are given the opportunity to see Hamilton in in person with one original cast member. Lynn is off the table because he's the easy <gasps> pick. You want to see you want to see Lynn. Everyone wants to see Lynn. You can't see Lynn. Lynn's off the table. Who do you pick and why? Oh my god, I, this is this is too much. I'm freaking out. Um, <laughs> what do you, you tell me? I want to hear what you guys said. You okay. tell me first. Okay, I went with Renee Lee Goldsberry. Because okay. I think her performance of Angelica satisfied gets me to this day. Um, I think oh, it's day. so good and so powerful, and that's such a pivotal character. I think you know, there's no wrong answer here. I would take the guy who does "I'm a General We" um, from the original from the original cast recording. Yes. But, but I think she. I, I think I would go her. I, I think I'm trying to remember. I think Jen picked the V Diggs, which is the other easy pick. That is the easy pick, but I would so I would go with David. I, I absolutely think I would go with David. Yeah. I think, and I th- also think that was the one that was the one thing that was so interesting seeing it is the guy who played Jefferson in the um, in the Kennedy Center version that we that we saw was just so like he was amazing and like very you know he was absolutely amazing and perfect and wonderful. But he seeing like. David's performances and like how he just like embodies that character and the things that he brings to it. I thought that was like one thing that I thought, ah, oh, like that's kind of it's not that it's missing, but I would I would pick, I would pick David. I'm is. super boring, basic, and also I just agree with anything that Jen says. I'm on board. I, 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 I do too, and obviously there's no if you if you have to pick either one of those, that's fine. Um, you know, you can pick anybody yeah. on that. So, so you have mentioned your, uh, the, the, the research that you do and your research interests and your research material and your research kind of topics. Um, yes. can, can, so kind of give us the overview a little bit, like what in general do you research? Okay. So in general, um, my area of research is looking at how popular music is used, uh, produced, consumed post disaster or tragedy. Um, which sounds like the biggest downer and it is uh, the biggest downer. Um, but kind of, I'm interested in like the, you know, knowing all criticisms, sure, of like popular music and how it is obviously, you know, excuse me, obviously, um, all commercialized and built for consumption and capitalism. I think that people, as you know, as you've experienced and Hamilton has something to do with this, this has this kind of emotional connection to music and music. I believe can create even popular music, even the crappy popular songs that are, you know, stylistically, you know, not impressive can create these really kind of important moments and memories and kind of essential things in our lives. And I think it's interesting how music is used individually and collectively um, by people kind of facing hard times or kind of coming back from really devastating circumstances. So like my um, dissertation, my master's thesis was about the Virginia Tech shooting and how people used um, YouTube to create tribute videos and what music, like what songs get used and kind of reappropriated. And my dissertation was about um, Hurricane Katrina and the kind of music that was produced um, and uh, disseminated and used after. So that is kind of has been where I've been I've kind of moved a little bit in the the past year or so. I've moved, 
I've kind of broadened that idea of music after tragedy or music as a way of or or media as a way of coping. um, Because I just think there's so much going on in the world. And I think that people utilize media knowingly um, and purposefully in interesting ways to deal with maybe not tragedy, but stressors in (laughs) modern day United States. Right. So I've expanded that a little bit. I always said that I would, you know, I would start like researching happy stuff. Like if I moved away from the actual disasters and tragedies, it would be towards like, you know, I don't know, just, you know, it's something happier with music, but instead of kind of taking this idea of using media and what I'm working on right now is um, how people use media, uh, entertainment media and digital media to deal with Trump fatigue in the United States right now. So not necessarily happier, but just a different kind of off, uh, like offshoot of that. Yeah. Um, so like media, popular media as a way of like coping and dealing with, uh, dealing with hard stuff is how I would say it. So how did you land on this as your research area? I, um, I'm an emotional guy. I don't know if you, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like, I very much connect with the idea of both like regulating my own emotions, my own moods via media in different ways. And music was always the big way, um, the big way that I did that. And honestly, like I went to school, I was going to be, um, a journalist. Like I was going to be a magazine journalist. So I was like, in 2001, I was like magazines, they're always going to be doing great. They're always going to be in the same big format that I consume it in 2000. I didn't have a ton of foresight then. Um, but I wanted to be like, I, I wanted to be a journalist and, um, I, uh, I've told this story so many times and it's, it's so cheesy, but it's a hundred percent what happened. My last semester of, um, undergrad, I took both a class on like media criticism of race, gender, and the media and a class about, um, the Beatles. It was all just about the Beatles, like the history of the Beatles, the socio-cultural importance of the Beatles. And those two classes completely changed like my career trajectory. I wanted to both I wanted to analyze media. I wanted to look at it critically. I didn't even realize you could do that as a job. And then I also saw and kind of discovered the music of this one particular group at a time that was, I was going through stuff as an undergrad. I was going through difficult times and, and just seeing like the kind of like the joy and the way that people kind of take this, have taken this, this one tiny like pop group and created all this meaning surrounding it. um, I think kind of, kind of led led to to that for me but aside from music I mean I I do this in my own life like there are certain shows that I'll watch over and over again that I know I'm like using this as a way of like mood regulation or a way of of kind of like dealing with stress or things that are going on and so I'm fascinated um by how uh, how other people do that as well so yeah you, and you said you're, uh, you, you, you've done your ma- big studies on this were Virginia Tech after the shooting and then New Orleans after Katrina. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, because I don't, like, obviously, we can get into both of them, but we'll start with the, Virgin- that, the Virginia Tech one, because I, obviously yep. we remember that massacre. But yep. I don't, so, like, what, it, so, you mentioned using using music and YouTube tri- tribute videos. So, like, what, what were the findings there? Because, you know, that's one of those, it's interesting, we can expand this out a little bit, because I think... You know, obviously, school shootings are an unfortunate norm now, but we don't we don't think of we don't think of like. Okay, this is gonna be a broader question. I'm spinning it around in my head as I'm saying it, but we don't think of the pop music that people are using now. I think the gold standard of it is that '60s era protest, right? Like that late '60s yep. civil rights, anti-war kind of you know, yep. music meaning stuff. 
How is that, and you can draw from your studies, but how does, how is that conceptualization of it changed to how it's being actually used now in 2004 and 2011 and 2018? What's super interesting and what I found uh, repeatedly in my research is that there are kind of different, there are different things that happen. So there will, and this was, this was in Katrina. This, I've noticed this, this happened in like 9-11, like this happens again and again. There will be original songs that people write like specific to the event. So similar to like the 19. 60s 1970s protest songs when they were super hyper focused on the actual event so like um ohio is the one that like always comes to mind like that is specific about the kent state shooting um but it's been kind of used to kind of talk about larger cultural issues at the time so there will be songs specifically written in response to these events i see less and less of that happening though um and what and you can say whether it's you know there's so many things happening and so many horrible events that we just kind of like move on from it. Um, but the other interesting thing that happens is you see these certain songs get kind of like reappropriated is how I've talked about it. Um, every kind of, every time one of these really sad kind of events happens, right? So these songs that have kind of become things that we're like, okay, this is a popular song. This symbolizes sadness. I'm going to stick this on to like, you know, a montage of the victims of, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to replay it. And it's going to have that kind of impact of, of creating, you know, an emotion and tying you to it. And, and it's really, I don't know, it's really interesting. And they're the songs that you would think that would be over and over again. What was interesting after Virginia Tech is, you know, obviously the, like the song Hallelujah, right? Mm -hmm. um, was used again and again and again. And that was also being used around that time, if not a few years earlier, in like every sad scene of like a teen um, like drama. Like, I mean, it was used in like the deaths of like, like a major character in like the OC. Anytime anything sad is happening, they just like stick that up there. Hmm. Like that's like one of those, those, those universal sad songs that we've adopted. The other song is Yesterday um, by the Beatles. That was hugely, hugely popular and big um, post 9-11. Also comes up again and again as this kind of like, you know, thinking back to simpler times. So you have these songs that kind of, reappear and that people have kind of come to be like oh yeah this is just a, this is a sad song but what I thought was interesting with Katrina is you had artists starting like artists were really making those like connections to the socio-cultural things that were happening that had happened in New Orleans and Mississippi in order to enable that kind of devastation and so they were writing songs and especially you've got a ton of rap songs um AZ, like Minority Report is a big one, um, uh, most deaf had song as well, that kind of talked to that specific event and these big cultural issues and system, like systemic like, racism and all of these things. But we also, again and again, we keep hearing these like the same kind of sad songs come up again and again. And, and it's, it's interesting to kind of think about how that's being utilized and, and why. Right. And it kind of gets at, I mean, a lot of interesting things come out of that. You mentioned the idea of reappropriation, but like, you know, I think of Hallelujah and, you know, that's obviously yeah. Leonard Cohen has covered it. It's, yeah. it's the Jeff Buckley version of the Leonard Cohen song, which, exactly. um, and, and, but, but like, I don't, it, it, because it's interesting because that gets into like, there's no original intent left on the song. It's no. just kind of become this, you know, cultural indicator of like sadness yeah. or cultural indicator yeah. that you should of like momentous sadness it feels like right because that's yes. such a big song and this is like like if you break out hallelujah you're breaking out the big guns and you really mean it this time as opposed Absolutely. to something like that 
No, absolutely. And it becomes almost, I mean, so for me and looking at what I've looked at, that's like the auditory, um, you know, popular music version of the, like the today we are all, we are all Virginia Tech or we are all, you know, Paris. And this idea of like these memes and these images that just keep getting slapped together and you change out the name of like the, whatever the event and whatever the location is, but exactly. It becomes almost a signifier. Like, oh, this is what we do. Something truly horrific has happened. We bring out Hallelujah. We bring out Yesterday. You know, we these are the songs that we cry to, and these are the popular, these are the popular songs that we've kind of that are these touchstones that we keep revisiting. So yeah, I know your uh, and your dissertation work. You did field work down in New Orleans yes. for that. So yes. t- tell me about that. What was that like? How what was what does field work for somebody who's never done field work look like? Oh my god, a lot of the field work that I did got completely like axed out of like the actual. Oh thing, no. But, like, I- I know, but I was, I was fine with it. It was for the better because I'm not, I've, I think I've gotten better at kind of like ethnographic field work, but it was not like my big thing. And I really, I had been in New Orleans once before for like a conference, but I hadn't gone specifically to like tour these spaces, be in these spaces and experience music in these spaces. So what was so important, the reason why I picked Katrina and New Orleans for the research, for the research I did for my dissertation is that this was a unique, like, this is a musical tragedy. I mean, it's a tragedy on a huge grand scale, but this is one of the American cities that is where, you know, the roots of so much of our music, of our American popular music is situated in that space. And not only um, was this devastating to, I mean, so many like lives lost, destruction, it's enormous, but devastating to these spaces where music had been created and that were essential for our like history in the United States as, you know, being a place where a lot of popular music, especially jazz, blues kind of originated. So I kind of had a list of like these spaces that had been either like destroyed or where people had kind of come to gather again um, once the flood uh, had kind of started to, um, to diminish to kind of go back and create these music. And I just kind of went to each I went to these bars and I sat there and I like I just took notes on the physical spaces and I went and just listened to a ton of jazz a ton of live music in New Orleans and obviously when you do something like that like you you're not comparing it to because I hadn't done this prior to like Hurricane Katrina but it just kind of like hit home how much of our identity in this country as being like pioneers of, of music and and kind of like you know, creative like leaders in, in a lot of in a lot of places when it comes to popular music, how much of it was originated in these spaces and how much of that was physically lost. And um, the thing that always like really hit me was uh, with, with Fats Domino. And I did a lot of like research about him um, because he was originally they thought he, he was missing like originally and they couldn't find him. Um, and he was, you know, he was found and uh, so much of his like musical history. And he's one of the biggest, you know, musicians uh, and the Neville brothers as well. So much of their um, their history, their like artifacts, their pianos, their awards, so much of that stuff was at, like actively kind of like destroyed and kind of went away. And so it became it's interesting to see how they've kind of re- had to rebuild those histories online because they're physically gone. So um, that was kind of what I did with the field work there. That's that, it's a tough life having to sit in New Orleans jazz bars was, and take notes. It was it was really hard. It was it was really rough. Um, you know, but I'm willing to do I'm willing to do the hard work, Brian. 
So, uh, and, and in thinking about like modern music, modern music, God, I sound so old, but in thinking about the music yeah. environment now, the music, like yeah. music industry now, and obviously it's much more personal, I like to say, I think more yeah. than fragmented because of Spotify, because of streaming, because of YouTube, um, because of all that. So I'm wondering what your sense of is, are the reasons that people use music and what they look for in music the same and just it's kind of more diffuse and we're like finding our own songs to do it as opposed to, you know, this idea that like people listen to Ohio and that was a signifier to get pissed off at, the, at Nixon and the, and the anti-war. So is, is it the reasons behind it are the same, but like the, the, the effect is more spread out or is it still, or was it never really that centralized an effect to begin with? That's so interesting. I think there, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things to look at it with that. And and, and I think of like, I, I feel a million years old, but like I, you think of like young people, especially right in terms of like using music and how they mu- use music to form identities and like kind of find out who they are. And to that extent, I think that there's still that need to kind of find that collective group surrounding like an artist. And so to find that community and to experience a song or maybe not physically experience a song with other people, but find the other people who are into that music and then you create your identity around it. So for that, for those purposes, I think it still matters that we tend to have some of those songs that, you know, they break through and they create these big moments and everyone's listening. It's the summer, you know, the song of the summer or whatever, but we have that ability to, I, I think of it a lot with like, and a lot of what I'm interested in has moved towards kind of like move and emotion and we have that ability to call up those songs for us in ways that we didn't necessarily have before I mean I know like you and I like I owned a ton of music I you know I owned it I I whether it was like you know I I certainly didn't illegally download but um we never no I was a college I was a college freshman in 2001 like that (laughs) that's this is the heyday of this so um but I, I owned it. So I was always kind of like, I had the music and if I wanted to listen to a certain song or like, I wanted to feel a certain way, I can do that. But that is so much easier to do these days. And so I'm interested. I don't know if people do it. I think people are more cognizant of it than we kind of realize, but, but I don't know, because I think you still need to have those, those kind of groupings around songs and around musical moments and music and pop culture history. But the ability to just like, dial up any song that you you know that you may want to listen to or may need to listen to is so interesting and it's something that I think has shifted so I mean just in the past five to ten years is wildly different than like when we were in grad school like talking about this stuff and popular culture in general right I mean so. it's cha- it's changed since I've been out the move from like owning oh, it, yeah. owning music to, to streaming music is I mean it's totally. such a weird fundamental shift um, so you, you t- talking about how people use media, I mean, in general, and kind of transition to new research on Trump fatigue, but mm-hmm. um, how do people, so like, what are the, the commonalities? Like, how do people use media? And what, what, I guess, what emotions, moods do they use media to express, to uh, calm? Like, well, how, how are people, yeah. how are, what are, what are people doing with media? in like this in this weird age that we live in yeah it's there's it's so weird and it's so interesting um and I think I always thought of it really only as music right I was always and I still to some extent and a lot of like um a lot of what I write a lot of what I've had to like delve into is like 
neuromusicology and like how the brain functions and it functions differently with music and we use music differently um in order to access certain emotions and memories and identity like that is there's a ton of research in other fields about that but i think the fact that now we have the ability to call up so quickly you know episodes of tv shows that are comfort for to us or like um or things you know films and you know whatever i think that that functions not necessarily in the exact same way, but in a similar way. So the idea that, um, you know, and it's super interesting. And one of the things that's always kind of fascinating to me is the division between people who, when they're sad, want to listen to a sad song or who people, when they're sad are like, why would I listen to a sad, like why would I double and turn on Adele or whatever, if I'm already depressed and sad about a breakup. But some people who do that, they use it either to feel, you know, like, oh, I'm not alone. Someone else has these emotions. Or sometimes it's as simple as, like, needing to make yourself cry and then you'll feel better, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, just actively, like, finding out that song that's going to make you cry. And we know, like, if you cry, you'll feel better. You're going to, you know, release hormones and things are going to happen biologically, physiologically. They'll make you feel better. And I kind of, I think that we see and what I've seen in terms of how people use media, use entertainment media. So like with the Trump fatigue project, this idea of like, there's a lot going on. And whether I like this guy or I don't like this guy, you can't escape him. So people are actively having to find ways to escape the constant coverage of of Donald Trump and the constant coverage of the administration and the constant, you know, having to be vigilant about what's going on and paying attention to what's going on. And so... Um, I had heard anecdotally there, there was interesting things from just from friends talking with friends, like right after the election, people were like really watching like the West wing Mm -hmm. or like parks and rec and like, which is interesting because I heard that and I was like, oh, it's, it's like this idealized form of government, right? When you feel like things are unsettled in your own real world. Um, but I found that people in talking to people about what they're doing and this is kind of across the board and we've we've spoken to some people who identify as conservative um but our next phase is finding more because i think there are people who just want that escapism from not having to pay attention to all of the serious stuff all the time and so it'll be you know comedies or whatever but then there's also a ton of people who are like, for example, watching The Handmaid's Tale, which surprised mm-hmm. me. Like, I thought, I was like, surely people, this is going to be too disturbing or whatever. But people are like, no, I want to watch it. I, I see those connections to the real world or worst case scenario. And there's something comforting about kind of seeing it playing out. So I think people do seek out media for a variety of reasons in, in a variety of instances. And some of it is kind of the, okay, yeah, other people are talking about this, thinking about this. Um, I'm not alone in that. Sometimes it's that sheer escapism. Sometimes it's that emotional release. And sometimes it's, you know, like the needing to kind of like laugh and just kind of just just kind of like take a break, which I guess is escapism. Yeah. But different ways, different things for sure. Yeah. And that, that escapism comes up a lot in my world, too, with the stick to sports thing with the NFL oh. and, and the uh, and the protests yes. ha- happening. And, you know, that's the common I guess one of the common complaints, even from people who probably side with the players politically, is that yeah. this idea of escapism. And, you know, the counter to that oh. is that the players can't, you know, the players are mostly black men. They can't escape this. There is no escape right. for that. And, you know, protest is meant to, you know, all, all, all this other stuff. But I do find that I do find that crazy interesting as well. And it is just, I think, a, an interesting reminder that, like, 
when we talk about how people process media, it seems like, and you know the stuff better than I do, but it seems like recently we've kind of really gotten to an understanding that people, everybody consumes media differently. And like, yeah. like you, you mentioned with the songs and different people at different times do. Sometimes Absolutely. when I'm having a depression day, I will listen to sad music. Huh? Sometimes, you know, my, my anxiety sounds like Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. Yep. And I realized that today. Like I listen to it and I'm like, oh, this is what this sounds like. Sometimes I need happy music to try to, you know, listen, you know, pop myself out of it. And, and, and there's no predicting it. And that's got to make it really interesting, but also challenging because there's no blanket. You should listen to happy music when you're sad because it will change your mind. And like, no, that doesn't always work for even the totally. same people. Oh, absolutely. And you need different things at different times. And that's what I think is interesting. And like, so I've kind of, I'm interested in kind of transitioning less from like analyzing the songs and the music and the events to kind of just talking and like doing more of like in-depth interviews, focus group type things. Cause I want to hear from people like how they're actually using it, how they're making those decisions. And again, as you said, like how it can shift and change. And we, because obviously, you know, the media landscape is such that it's so it's, it's certainly fragmented and you have all of these choices and all of these things. So how are you making those choices? And sometimes it's going to be as simple as like, oh, everyone's talking about this new show on Netflix. So I'm going to watch it or like on board, this comes up on the front page. But I do think that people, um, and certainly people, and I think, honestly, I think people who are more, who deal with, you know, with like mental health stuff and like anxiety and depression and mood stuff. I think it kind of forces you to be a little bit more cognizant about your behaviors and like what things are, are triggering to you, what things are helpful or what, or what are not. And I think that makes you, I, I think that makes a person a more active media user in a different way than mm-hmm. even how we're discussing the idea of active audience or whatever. Right. Absolutely. You, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, no. you like, you're curating it and you're thinking about what you need and like, what you don't need and you know, what things you can handle and what you can't. And so I don't know, it's, right. it kind of changes the whole active audience thing even more, I think. Right. Well, and the reasons for people who, who do for when they, why they consume media, like you said, they're different. Like you, yeah. like right now, as, as we're talking about this, this is the opening week for uh, crazy rich Asians in the movie. Yep. And like, mm-hmm. and like, I'm kind of want to see that. I know nothing about the movie. You know, I'm glad there's representation on it, but it's one of those movies I'm probably going to want to see because my Twitter feed is all about this movie. And so it's kind of like, like Black Panther was Black Panther more in my wheelhouse. It's a superhero movie, but like that kind of thing where a movie kind of get becomes popular. And then like, that's got to make it challenging when you study media, because like, why am I going to see this movie? Well, it might be yeah. eight, eight different reasons, including just it's a superhero movie, and I like superhero movies. It just happens to be, you know, and there and layer and that's layered with. Well, I want to see what they do with this character. I want to see how they represent this, and it, it, it's totally. yeah. And like you said, music is so different. I know, you know, yeah. Oliver Sacks has written written so much about uh, music and the brain and the effect that, and, and how we process it so differently than basically any other media. Yes. Uh, Music Ophelia, that's one of my favorite books. And uh, Oliver Sacks, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, absolutely. And like, the, but the idea, I think what you said is so important that it's not just like one thing. It's not just one decision. And like your mood and emotion comes into it. But like I, yeah, Crazy Rich Asians is a great example. Like I saw the trailer. It looks great. I want to mm-hmm. see it because it looks, it looks good. It looks funny. It looks like a rom-com, like a reminiscent of like older school rom-coms that were, that were actually good and interesting. It has actresses, you know, like it has like, you know, actors and actresses that I like. So I want to see that. And then obviously like add to that, the fact that this is the first like 
all like U.S. Hollywood made um, uh, like all Asian uh, cast since like, for like what like twenty five years or something. Yeah, it, like like the Joy Luck Club. So yeah. I'm like I want to go and I want to support that because we're we make comments and we make you know we make uh, our values known with our money and like diversity in media is incredibly important and I want to support that absolutely. So it's so it's layered and it's not just you know, the one, the one thing, the one reason why we're seeing it for sure. So I ask all my guests this and I will ask you, what is the best thing you've read lately? The best thing I've read lately. Oh my God, Brian. Um, I, hold on. Give me a moment. I've been, I've been super like, I don't know. I've, it's been an interesting summer in terms of like my like media consumption in general. And I have kind of actively, I've, I've actively kind of like sought out to read or listen to or watch things that are very kind of like gentle or more like fluff. Like I really have, I've really been like, okay, I need to not, I need to not be like completely, you know, plugged in, not completely, um, completely in touch with the the smart like important things and i'm gonna just like read a bunch of like the murder mysteries that are formulaic or watch like a bunch of youtube videos about makeup um just because (laughs) i just like i feel like i need that i feel like i i'm trying to think the the best things that i've read recently would be like super recent as of this morning and some of the tributes and some of the articles um about aretha franklin have been like completely amazing and i'm looking forward to going back and like kind of speaking that out there's one in the nation that i think did such an amazing job um kind of situating her as obviously an important influential like popular artist but also her her like uh her involvement in terms of like um supporting black women and in like the like black liberation movements of like the 1970s and i don't know there's so much to read there's so much like amazing stuff online and long, you know, long form thing pieces. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer. No, no it's good. <laughs> I, I, I have the uh, link to the nation piece. I'm going to put okay, that. Perfect. And, that and, was one of like, just ones that just completely like hit you, like just in the gut. And you're like, this is, this is right on the, this author has done an amazing job of like situating this artist because it's so easy to get lost, especially when this time when all, when we're losing these amazing artists and, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because so much of this stuff, I think the labor would have been like left up to maybe like, um, uh, a lot of like media scholars and things to write like these longer pieces that take forever to get into production. And I think that, you know, with digital media and the media cycle, we have so many amazing things that happen right away and so many amazing cultural critics, um, kind of putting, putting things like the importance of those events in the moment. Do you have a favorite Aretha Franklin song? Oh my God. Absolutely. Um, my favorite Aretha Frank, obviously respect. Thank it's all great. But, um, I love the song. Um, I've never loved a man the way I love you. Nice. That is probably, that's my favorite. I love that for a variety of reasons. She's amazing, amazing powerhouse. But the other, here's my other interesting reading of that song, um, is as a queer woman who had only like previously dated, I'm married to, I'm married to a woman now who had previously only like dated men. That my <laughs> reading of that song is like a different, it's like a kind of queer version of it too. Right. Oh, so, absolutely. Like, yeah. Right. I'm like, I've never, I never loved a man the way that I love my, my wife. So I think that mm-hmm. also to me speaks of the way that popular music can 
we can kind of take it on and lend, create new important meanings um, uh, from, from that stuff. Excellent. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time and chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. Thank you.